Good morning, everybody. Just want to again welcome those of you who are here for the first or second time, checking out what we're doing. Thank you so much for coming by and taking your time to be with us this morning. You know, the things that we do, the songs that we sing, and the way in which we express ourselves in worship and in singing is for us directed to us by the Word of God. And so now in this part of the service, what we do is we we go into the Word of God, the Bible, and say, how does the Word of God speak to me today to influence and affect my life? So we're going to turn, if you guys would please turn with me to Colossians. We're in the fourth chapter of Colossians. And we are finishing up. This is our eighth message on the book of Colossians. And so this is our eighth and last message on Colossians. We've been going through this for the past two months. And hopefully for you it's been a fruitful two months of digging into God's Word to see what it has to say for your, for your life. And I'm going to pray and ask the Lord to be with us. Help us. Help me. Lord, we just come before you today and we thank you that you are with us. God, that there's nowhere that we can go where you are not. And Lord, we ask this morning that you would, God, help us to understand your word. God, pray that you would help me to articulate the things that um, you are saying to us as a church. And Lord, I, I do pray that you'd remove any kind of distractions. Lord, that you would open our ears and our eyes. Give us understanding hearts. And Lord, we want to thank you this morning for the privilege of worshiping and calling upon your name together, not only in singing, but also in in receiving and hearing the word. God, let this be a time of worship for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So we'll be in the fourth chapter of Colossians, looking at verses 2 through 6. On May 17, 1972, Don Gorski, after getting his very first car, drove over to McDonald's where he purchased and ate three Big Macs at lunchtime. And it was love at first bite. He then returned two more times that day to consume a total of nine Big Macs the same day he discovered the sandwich. He further claims to have eaten 200 and 65 Big Macs in the following month, an average of 8.5 Big Macs per day, which is the equivalent of over 4,600 calories, 247 grams of fat daily, for a total that month of 143,000 calories and almost 17 pounds of fat in one month. In 2003, Don Gorski ate 741 Big Macs, an average of 2.03 Big Macs per day. Then on August 17, 2008, Gorski ate his 23,000th Big Mac. He claims that, he ate his, that since he ate his first Big Mac, there have only been eight different days in which he did not eat a single Big Mac. One of these days was the day his mother died, and he did not eat a Big Mac to respect her request. So... You can imagine a mother so perturbed at her son's passion for Big Mac that on her deathbed, 
son, please, the day I die, don't eat a Big Mac. Please. I mean, this is, this is her wish, her, her request to him. So he honored that. Other days include a snow day when McDonald's was unable to open due to snow. A Thanksgiving. Days he was traveling, could not find a McDonald's. In various days, Gorski had to stay at work past midnight. But he's wised up. Since then, he started keeping an emergency stash of Big Macs in his freezer for emergencies and snow days. Don Gorski also records when, when and where he eats his Big Macs in a notebook that he carries with him all the time. Gorski has kept every single burger receipt in a box since that first day on May, since 1972. So I did a little bit of math on this. I'm just, I was just curious. He's roughly gone since that day, May 17, 1972, till today. He's roughly gone 13,700 days of eating Big Macs with a percentage, with a daily percentage success rate of 99.94%. This guy is amazing. This guy is consumed. He is passionate about Big Macs. This is, he's, he's given his life to this thing. Every single day, without fail, he finds a McDonald's, he gets his Big Mac. And the days that he can't find a McDonald's that's open because he lives in Wisconsin, they get a lot of snow, guess what? He's got his emergency stash in the freezer for those times. Now today, how am I going to tie this into a sermon, right? Um, today we're going to look at a passage of Scripture where Paul begins to describe for us what our prayer lives and what our passions, where they should lie and how, how that should look. So we're going to start reading in Colossians 4. And I'm going to read verses 2 through 6. This is what Paul writes to the Colossian church. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Conduct yourselves wisely toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. And let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. And so Paul starts off for us describing what our prayer lives should look like. And so, and really for us, personal prayer life in verse 2. Don't you just love clear instructions? I don't know about you, but when I get something from Ikea or Target that I've got to put together, and I open the box, and the instructions are like nowhere to be close to what's in the box, and there's no, there's no like discerning what screw goes where and what, what needs to go where. You know, it's just this mass confusion, and it just leaves you frustrated. Has anyone ever experienced that before? Maybe because I put together so many kids' stuff that I feel like I'm like an expert on like putting together cheap uh, furniture and stuff. So it just leaves me frustrated when I, when I get these instructions like that. Now, the Apostle Paul for us in our prayer life doesn't want us to feel that way. So what he does is he begins to give us clear instructions about what that should look like. And so he lists for us three things that he says, this is what your prayer life should look like. Okay, so number one, he says this, 
continue steadfastly in prayer. This is devoted to, this is persistence, fervor. This is Don Gorski and Big Macs, okay? This is continual, ongoing, doesn't take a break. This is all the time. This is what Paul is saying, continue steadfastly. He's not saying this as like, hey, maybe this is a good idea for you. He says, no, 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 no. This is how it should look. Continue steadfastly in prayer. And it's, it's times for us to be consistently aware of the opportunities that we have to pray. And we have that all the time. I can't tell you how many days that, that have gone by where I've been sitting there working through things at the church or at home or wherever I was and just oblivious to the fact that I'm in the presence of the Lord. And I have an opportunity to fellowship with God right where I'm at. Doesn't have to be somewhere special. Doesn't have to be at church. Doesn't have to be in a prayer meeting. Those things are important. It can be anywhere, anytime. He says, continue steadfastly in prayer. The next thing he says is this, watchful, being watchful in it. This is spiritual alertness. The most basic definition for us, don't fall asleep when you're praying. How many of us have, have started off with this, 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 this desire to pray? We get on our hands and knees or we sit in bed and we begin to pray within two sentences or we kind of wake up and the Bible's open on our, on our stomach. We're like, what happened? Oh, it's three o'clock in the morning and I totally fell asleep. No one's, no one's ever, that's never happened to anyone before, has it? Um, it's never happened to me, but no. But we need to be alert to the opportunities to pray. He said being watchful in it. And I remember the times in my life where I've been bold enough to ask someone wherever we were at the grocery store or at school or wherever it was and said, hey, would you like me to pray for you right here? There's been very few times that people said, no, don't. Not now. People have always been receptive to that. And so we've got opportunities every day to be watchful in it. It's almost like this sense of vigilance. How can I pray? Who can I pray for? What is it that I can, I can pray to the Lord for? What is it that's going on in my life? What's so-and-so going through that I can pray for him about? Calling a friend up, hey, what are you going through? How can I pray for you? There's this watchful in it, this alertness. We're on patrol for things to pray for. So not only are we continuing steadfastly in it, we're being watchful, vigilant in it, but we're also thankful. This is how our prayers should be offered. And thankfulness keeps us from allowing our prayers to become self-centered. Keeps us from allowing our prayers to be selfish, dealing only with myself, praying only for myself. But when we begin to be thankful in our prayer life, thankful to the Lord for what He's done, thankful, we sing these songs, arms high, heart abandoned. The fact that we can even come before God and worship Him could be for us a source of thankfulness. Lord, thank You. You've made a way for me to express love to you and have it be acceptable to you, have it be pleasing to you, that you would draw me near to you, that you would, you would call me near to you, that you would desire for me to worship you and pray to you, that you'd listen to my prayers. It can be a source of great thankfulness in our own hearts for many things. So he says, steadfast in prayer, watchful in it, and thankful. Now, we look in verses 3 and 4, 
Paul changes from saying, hey, you do this, and I, the way I want you to do this, now saying, hey, would you pray for me? Okay? Now we're going to look at the way that Paul prayed and wanted them to pray for him. So Paul says in verses 3 and 4, At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Pause prayer, an open door for the word. Salvation is a work of God in our lives. Salvation is something that God has opened the door to us. He says he prays for the door to be open, for him to make clear the mystery of Christ. Guys, if I am in prison and I write a letter to the church asking for prayer, I'm probably going to say, open the door to the, pray that the Lord open the door to the prison, not open the door for the very thing that got me in prison in the first place. Okay? We've got to understand, Paul's writing this, this passage sitting in prison. He's in prison because he's preaching this message. And so he's writing this saying, hey, hey, pray that you would enable me to more clearly do the thing that got me in prison in the first place. And if you think about that, what a, what a profound thing. I would be asking things like, give me favor with the guards. Get me out of here quick. Give me favor with the judges. Pray that I wouldn't get sick and, and beat up and whatever else going on. And in Paul's day, the Roman prisons, not a fun place. Terrible places. Just filth and, and, and sickness. So much so that people would avoid even going down the street that the prisons were on. It's usually in some pit somewhere, underground. And just foul places. And here he is asking the church to pray that the Lord would open the door to make the gospel clear to people. It's challenging. It's challenging. He says he wants to make the gospel clear. It's his free gift of God. So that which was revealed in the Old Testament is now made known in Christ Jesus. Throughout the ages, there was an understanding of who God is and what God did through the system of sacrifices in the Old Testament. It said the way to be made right with God is through sacrifices, through a priest going before you to God. And now in Jesus Christ, there was a final sacrifice for sin. And that was Jesus Christ on the cross, paying the price for us. Now going before us as a, as a mediator to God for us, not having to go through a high priest anymore. He says, that is what I want, I want to proclaim. That is what I want to make clear. That is what I want everyone to know. So I wonder, after looking at this, what do our prayer requests look like? That our, is our concern for those who do not know Christ and His saving power, even at the cost of prison? Here is Paul, consumed with and concerned for, care for the lost. I'm reading this this week, and I'm just struck. Am I satisfied with with a concern for the lost that would go beyond just a couple hours of church on a Sunday morning, a couple prayer meetings, maybe doing my mandatory, you know, reach out to neighbors kind of thing. Or is this consuming me? Am I challenged by this? 
Am I desiring to grow in this? Is this what God is doing in my life? Would I be able to write a letter like this to the church saying, I know I'm in prison, but I want to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ at all costs. Even if it means I end up back in here or I stay in here longer or I die in this place, I want to make the name of Jesus Christ known. I wrote this, that this consumes our lives and is costly. This is costly. This is Christian living that is costly. It's not cheap and easy. It costs us much. Early mornings of prayer, reaching out to the lost, giving to things like missions, or helping someone in need. Whatever it is, it's costly. And so I ask myself this, if I don't see this in my life, and this isn't the pattern of my life, why not? Why don't I see this in my life? Why don't I feel this way? And I just wrote a couple things down. Am I apathetic? Am I indifferent or selfish? Am I lukewarm towards the things of God in my life? What other things consume me that would pull me away from these things? And so, you know what, for us, For me this week, it came to a place of repentance. Lord Jesus, I don't feel this way like I should. You are challenging me with your word. And I want to pray and I want to know you. And I want to to experience your presence in a powerful way. I want to reach the lost for you. I want you to open the door. When that door opens, I want to walk through it wholeheartedly. And we'd ask the Lord to forgive us for not doing that and give us the grace to do it. We sing the songs about Jesus Christ dying on the cross for our sins, meeting us right where we're at. That's the good news about Jesus Christ. We don't have to get all the things straightened out and squared away. He says, I'll meet you right where you're at. I give grace to the humble. When we say, Lord Jesus, I need you to experience this, to do this and to walk this out, and to live the way that you want me to live. Then he says, I've got grace, which is God's favor in our lives, undeserved in his power in our lives, to give us that ability to do these things. He does that for us. I just want to take a moment. We're just going to pray. And just ask the Lord to help us. So Lord, we just come before you right now. God, we want our prayer lives to look like this. Lord, we want to continue steadfastly in prayer. We want to be watchful in it. Lord, we want to be thankful for the things that you've done. We've enabled us to be able to go to you, to know you, to love you. So God, we pray, help us to be steadfast in this. Lord, help us to be watchful. Help us to be thankful. And God, we ask that you would forgive us. Lord, when we have been lazy in this, Lord, when we have been apathetic towards you, Lord, when we have seen a need or an opportunity to pray, we've turned away. Lord, forgive us. God, I pray that as a church, we would be known as a church that prays. Lord, that we'd be known as a people who are watchful in prayer. 
We'd be known as a church who is thankful. So, Lord, I pray, help us, God. Lord, give us your power to change. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's not the end of the message. <laughs> There's still more yet to come. Okay, we're going to look now at verses 5 and 6. So here's Paul giving us an idea what prayer life should look like. And then there's Paul saying here, would you pray for me this way and for these things? And I believe it's for us a model of things for us to begin to pray for our own lives and ask the Lord for. So I've been praying this week for the church, for us, that we would have the ability to proclaim the word of God, that he would open the door for the word of God in our communities, in our neighborhoods, in our families. That God would help us to do these things and walk through it. Now Paul goes from, from this private prayer life to more public life. So he says, here's what it looks like in private for you to pray and ask the Lord for. And now what's it going to look like for us to do publicly? Because we're not going to do anything necessary publicly that we're not already doing in private. We're not going to somehow man up to the job if we haven't been in a sense, manning up for it in private, asking the Lord to do this. So he's saying, look, you get this right first, then you're going to do this because God is going to help us do these things. So number one, he says, uh, I'll read the verses, conduct yourselves wisely toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So he says this, let your conduct be wisely, but this is all under the understanding of the way in which we relate to people outside of these church walls. Primarily, this is how we live our lives. This is the testimony of our lives. This is the passion for the lost. This is, this is one of the reasons we planted a church in Highland because we have a desire to see the lost come to know Christ. See those who don't know Christ come to know him. So Paul for us is saying, This is the way in which you conduct yourselves to be a testimony to the rest of the world. He says, act wisely. Conduct yourselves wisely. This past week, I was visiting someone in the hospital, Munster Community. And on the south end of the hospital, if you turn out of it and you go along the street to get out to like the main road, you can only make a right turn. You can't make a left turn. So I went to visit someone in the hospital. They happened to be being discharged just as I was getting there, so we got to leave together. So they're leaving, I'm leaving, and I pull out of the parking lot, get out to the road, and I see, like, I need to go left, but it says only go right, you know. So I'm like, come on. This is, like, for rush hour, you know, lots of cars coming along. I mean, surely they don't mean when there's not a single car on the road, I can't turn left, you know, come on. So I'm like, you know what? I'm not going to waste my time pulling around. I'm just going to make a left turn, you know? So I did. And then as I'm driving, I'm like, man, what if anyone saw me do that? What if I got pulled over and a cop was like, what are you doing? Oh, I'm a pastor. I'm visiting someone at church and I happen to not want to take the time to turn right. I want to, you know. And then I thought, well, what if the people that were leaving behind me saw me? People in our church, they saw me take a left turn when I should have turned right. And I'm like, are they behind me right now? Like, if they are behind me, they do the same thing. So <laughs> I guess I'm all right. But the point is this, that we have an opportunity 
to act wisely in, in the little things and in the big things. And everything that we have that we do is an opportunity for a testimony of Jesus Christ. And so for me, if I were to get pulled over or the, the couple behind me to see me, that, that it ruins, in a sense, soils a testimony that I could have had. Because no one's going to want to hear from a guy who disobeys the laws and then sits up on a Sunday morning and says, hey, you guys should obey the laws. No one's going to buy that, okay? So it's so important. We have every opportunity. Then he also says this, make the best use of the time. Okay, this is in the classical Greek. This is a market term. It means to buy out or purchase completely. This would be like a Black Friday sale, okay? You show up and there's no one around and you're at Target and they've got some like incredible sale on, you know, Blu-ray players and you buy the whole stack because you can't help yourself. This is too good to be true. Michelle, a couple of years ago, we, she went to Ultra one morning and they had like a sale on steak and it was like an, like a dollar 50 a pound or something ridiculous, super cheap, good steak. She bought 34 of them. Okay. She's like, this is too good to be true. I can't believe the fortune that I have showing up at Ultra and seeing the steak on sale. We ate steak for like the next two weeks. No, it lasts like the whole summer. But here's the thing. Make the best use of the time. When we see something like that, we're like motivated. Hey, I'm going to do something. I'm going to act on this. There's an opportunity here. This is for my, this is for my good. This is, this is going to benefit me. This is going to help others. I, I can give this away or whatever it may be. And Paul's saying, the way in which we act towards people, for us to be looking for it that way, that we would look for every opportunity. When that door opens, when we have that opportunity to tell someone about the Lord or to act in a way that's kind, he says, man, you need to jump all over that. It needs to be like Michelle at Altar on a steak sale. It needs to be something that, man, you're going you're gonna to do all that you can to use every last bit of, of, of your energy and, and time to invest into this thing. This is not just something, you, oh, that's a good sale. No, no, no. This is something you buy out completely. Every last one of it's gone. Completely take advantage of this. So he says, make the best use of your time. So the question I was asking is, how can we know how to be wise and make the best use of our time? How can we be alert for these things? How can we know when that opportunity comes? How can we know when that door is open? Go back to verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Prayer for us keeps us vigilant. It keeps our eyes focused, not on ourselves, but on others in the Lord. Prayer for us is the key to being able to be like Paul and say, oh, I've made the best use of my time. You wouldn't believe the opportunity I had today. You wouldn't believe what I was able to say. You wouldn't believe the person I was able to encourage. You would not believe the scripture that God gave me to bring to someone today. Man, it's the best use of our time. It's acting wisely. And prayer helps us to do that. I read a quote this week. I think it was by Thomas Chalmers. And he said this, Prayer doesn't enable us to do a greater work for God. Prayer is the greater work for God. And so this prayer life has an opportunity for us to live this way. It, it, it opens our eyes. 
It makes us aware of what's going on around us. Prayer keeps us thinking beyond ourselves. Keeps us focused on God and His purposes for our lives. It's so important. Next thing he goes, so he goes from conduct to speech. Chapter, or verse 6 says this, gracious. Gracious speech. An impartation of grace to people through the way we speak. Ephesians 4.29 says this, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. How many times have you spoken with somebody and they just imparted grace to you? And you left that conversation thinking, man, grace has been imparted to me. You may not be able to put it in those terms, but you left thinking, man, that was just a good conversation. I feel built up in the Lord. I feel encouraged. I feel like I want to go and be live for the Lord more fully with my life. He says we can impart grace to the way we speak to one another. Is that the way our speech is? And if it is not, that is an opportunity for us to say, Lord, I want my speech to be more gracious. Lord, forgive me if it's not. Lord, I said this today, it wasn't gracious. Lord, forgive me, help me to be gracious. The next thing he says is seasoned with salt. He's not talking about salty language here, okay? And what we would think of salty language. Now, if we've got a number of teachers in the room here, educators, you ask you ask a, a question, you ask a question in class, and everyone's everyone's been a, everyone's seen this or everyone's done this a number of times. Teacher asks a question, and you give the right answer. It's the book answer. Okay, I mean it is right on. It's you're using words you've never even heard before, but you. You somehow managed to find it right at the right time and you raise your hand and you read from the book and you're, you're right, you're correct. And everyone knows around you that you have no idea what you're talking about. And the teacher knows you have no idea what you're talking about. Can't really do anything because you're right, okay? And as we communicate with others about the Lord, nobody wants some stale, rehearsed answer. Nobody wants an answer that's just some like regurgitation of some theological deep thing that we've heard a long time ago and now we're just kind of laying it on them let me show you what i know no one wants that so how do we get to real salty speech how do we get to salty speech according to what the word of god says one of the ways is this we talk about it all the time we talk about it we talk about it all the time we bring it up we converse with others. We ask questions. Listen, when you talk to a doctor, and I've, I've experienced this with Michelle, when you talk to a doctor who is fresh out of medical school and you ask him a question, he's only been practicing for a short time, you get the book answer. You get the answer that he learned. Not because he's experienced this, but because this is what he's, he's learned. And you can tell because you're still left like, what? I don't understand that. And then he can't explain it to you because that's all he knows. Whereas... Michelle goes to a midwife for this child, and this midwife has been delivering babies for like 30 years. Since she was like 12, she's been delivering babies. And you know what? She doesn't have any book answers anymore. They're not book answers. What she, what she gives you answers from is from the experience of her life and the things that she's seen and the way that she's applied the book answers to real life to give you real examples and real stories and real help. 
And it's helpful because you leave feeling like, I understood that. That made sense. Thank you. That was helpful. The same goes for us. The more we begin to talk about God, the more we begin to dialogue with others, the more we'll be able to genuinely converse with people about who God is, what he's done, the effect he's had in your life, what you've seen in the word of God. And in this context, what Paul is talking about, salty speech, again in the Greek, it's winsome, it's joyful, it's witty. It's not just some some trite old language that nobody understands. It's winsome language that people can understand. And it's not just something we do. It's, it's who we are. It's the way in which we express ourselves in the Lord to people. And the end result is this, that we know how to answer each person. When I first read this, I was kind of under the, under the impression that Paul's giving kind of like this letter to almost like the debate team of Colossians that he's like, hey, when someone questions you, you're going to have the right answer and you're going to really stick it to them and you're going to to know to ask them good questions and really get them stuck and to defend the faith and all those things, which those things are important. However, I think what he's getting at here is the way in which we, we are able to converse with people of all different seasons of life. The way that I talk to my kids about God is going to be different from the way that I talk to someone that I meet at the grocery store or someone that is here at church coming up and asking a question about the sermon afterwards. It's this way in which we know how to answer each person, that each person that comes to us is precious to the Lord and God wants to use us to reach them and care for them and bless them with gracious words, with winsome words. And so... He's not writing to the debate team. He's writing to us to say, look, there's going to come different people in your life in all seasons, at all times. And he said, I want you to know how to answer each person. Not so you could stick it to them or give them an argument that they can't refute, but so that you can love them, care for them, be concerned for them. That's gracious speech. And so I want us to really consider, is this my life? Is this the way in which I conduct myself? I'm going to read out of John 5. We're going to look at something real quick and then we're going to close in prayer. But I want to first ask us this question. Do we want this? In John 5, the evangelist John writes this. After this, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool an Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roof colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him laying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, this is what Jesus asked him, someone who had been an invalid for 38 years, do you want to be healed? What an interesting question to ask someone who's been an invalid for 38 years. Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? There's times in our lives where we can, we can hear a message like this, that we can be confronted with Scripture like this, 
that challenges us to live in a way that's radically different from what we live. And we're going to think, that's good. That's really good. Close the Bible, go on our way. But I believe the Lord is asking us this morning as a church, is this what you want for your life? Because there's times when we, be, we can become so comfortable with the way that we live our lives that we don't even realize that we need to be healed, that we need God to change our hearts, that we need God to, to move in us in a powerful way, to change the way that we live and pray and act and speak. And so the question I want to ask you is, do you want to, is this something that you want? Is this something that in your heart you say, yes, Lord? Because like I said, it's costly. It's not something we just do on our own. This is the work of God in our lives. This is us depending and relying upon Almighty God to change the way that we pray and live and speak and love others and direct our prayer lives. This is hugely important. So I want to close with that. I want to ask you that question. Is that something you want? Because I think at this point, Jesus asking this guy this question, made this guy like, yeah, I really do want that. That's what I've been waiting for. And so I want to challenge us as we pray. I'm going to give a moment of silence for us to be able to say on our own, not from my mouth, but from your mouth, on your own to the Lord, and say, Lord, this is what I want. God, change my life this way. I've not lived this way. God, I, I repent of this. I turn from this. I say, I'm sorry, and Lord, I need your grace to help. Because, God, I want to care for people this way. I want to love people this way. I want to pray this way. I want my prayer life to look this way. And there's a lot of times we have big prayer meetings here at church. We have one at 8 o'clock every Sunday morning. Down in the, in the nursery, we have a prayer meeting once a month on a Wednesday night here at church. But this is primarily done in the closet of your room. And on your hands and knees before God in your room. In the quiet times, in the early mornings, in the late nights. Every opportunity you get. This is where this is lived out. There's not some secret miracle to this of like, just do this, this, and this, and your prayer life will look this way. The one thing is needed is for us to, to call out to God and ask Him to change us. To give us the strength to do this. So I'm just going to take a moment of silence. I'd like for you just to consider, Lord, does my life look this way? And if not, have a moment to repent. Ask the Lord for grace to change. And I'm going to close with a prayer. So let's do that right now. So, Lord, we come before you as your children, asking our Father to heal us, to change us. God, we repent of our apathy towards the things of God and towards others. God, we repent of our laziness, 
that would keep us hitting the snooze bar when we should be getting up with you. That would cause us to stay longer on the internet than we should. That would try to fill our lives with movies and things. God, when we have every opportunity with you. So Lord, I pray, forgive us. And God, I pray that in your great kindness and mercy to us, Lord, I ask that you would change our hearts. Lord, not only give us the desire to pray and to love the lost, Lord, but I pray that you would give us the strength to do it. God, we acknowledge that this is not on our own strength. It's not on our own doing. Lord, it is a work of you. And Lord, we will cooperate with what you're doing. Lord, we will cooperate with your leading. We will cooperate with your grace that enables us to pray, to live. So, Lord, we ask for that this morning. Lord, help us. And God, thank you for your grace and your mercy and kindness that is available to us because of the cross in Jesus Christ. Lord, you've not left us as orphans, but you've filled us with your Holy Spirit. Lord, that you will empower us, that you do give grace to the humble. God, that you will draw us near to you once again as we're reminded by the continual way in which you speak and draw and care for us. Thank you, God. Help us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.